0: Welcome to another quarantined edition of the Beyond the Bubble podcast, where every week we take you inside the race for the White House in a way only McClatchy's 30 newsrooms across the country can. I am McClatchy DC Politics Editor Adam Walner, filling in for Alex Rorty today, getting a deserved break. We hope you are all staying safe out there. Joining me today is Dave Katniss. He's a national political correspondent for us here in the DC Bureau. Dave, welcome back. Good to be with you, Adam and making his beyond the bubble debut is Michael Wilner. He's one of our ace White House correspondents here in Washington. I blame Alex for not inviting you on sooner Michael, but we appreciate you taking the time to join us today.
1: Yes, we'll have to have a word with him, but it is good to be <laughs> with you.
0: Absolutely. Uh, I'm excited to hear what insights you have to share from the White House briefing room, which uh, as far as I can understand has been a pretty interesting place these past couple of weeks. But first, I want to kind of talk about the state of the electoral map here and take just sort of a step back because believe it or not, we're officially Going to be six months away from the general election on Sunday. And, you know, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, they may not be able to campaign in person yet. We actually do have a, a pretty good sense, I think, of which battleground states are going to be receiving the most attention heading into November. Obviously, there, there's a lot of uncertainty just hanging over the election in general right now with, uh, you know, not knowing how long uh, this coronavirus pandemic is going to be affecting American life. We don't know what the economy is going to look like. You know, Joe Biden now is dealing with some, some resurfaced sexual assault allegations this week. So obviously there is so much uncertainty still hanging over this campaign and a lot that's going to change between now and November. But I do feel like we do know where the battlegrounds are going to be. And it may end up being a fairly small map uh, where, you know, where both parties and the campaigns are focusing a lot of their their money and, and their their staff and, and all that. So, Dave, I know you have been doing some reporting on that this week. So why don't you just start by giving us an overview of how both sides are, are sort of seeing the map shape up to this point?
2: Yeah, this is basically consumed most of my week. So I feel like I have a pretty good handle on where top strategists and the campaigns believe this map is going to be. And it's pretty obvious for political junkies where it starts. It starts through the Rust Belt, mm-hmm. the blue wall map with Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. Those are the states that are going to see the most investment. Those are the states that you already see investment from super PACs on both sides. Millions of dollars are already being spent on the air in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And that, I think, is where you're going to see if there is campaigning resume <laughs> at some point where the candidates end up spending most of their time, where the surrogates end up spending most of their time. It's where Joe Biden has been doing sort of satellite local TV interviews, Zoom interviews for the moment. Sort of the second tier state that is going to be a battleground once again, just because it is a perennial battleground and it's the biggest battleground is going to be Florida. 29 electoral votes, you know, it comes within reach of Democrats, it seems to, and then it falls out of reach at the end when all the votes are counted. But polling looks good there. And the question that Biden is going to have to face in speaking to Democrats is, does he have the money to really compete there. David Pluff says it's a $100 million decision that he's going to have to make soon. Yeah. Hillary Clinton spent $80 million in Florida only to lose it. We know Trump's got the money, and we know it's his home state now. So, I mean, there's no path for him without Florida. Mm-hmm. So Florida's sort of that second-tier state. That would be the fourth state in addition to Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. And then there are sort of the future states. The two states most sort of referenced in this category are Arizona, which is obviously out West, which is looking more promising for Democrats because of increased Hispanic participation, but also moderate Republican women who are turned off by Trump, who rewarded Democrats out there in 2018. So put Arizona in a future state. And then the The toughest state probably for Democrats to flip but is on their radar is North Carolina, Mm -hmm. which is obviously in the McClatchy family market. So we'll be paying a lot of attention to it. It's got a governor's race. It's got what is expected to be the most expensive Senate race. You know, it's a state that Trump won by three and a half points. So it's a bit out of that tier of Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, which were, you know, obviously the closest. Mm -hmm. And Democrats say that's a reach, but that it will be competitive and that's the ballgame. Those are the six core states that in conversations with both sides, those are the states that are repeatedly mentioned in sort of that order of priority as I laid them out. Now, you're going to hear cases for other states. There, there will sure. be some reach states. Oh, we'll put Texas in play. Some people will say, let's put some money into Georgia if you're the Democrats. Trump is going to look at New Hampshire. He's going to look at Nevada. He's going to look at Minnesota. That gets you to about 12 states overall. But in overall in conversations, they say th- those top six are
0: where this election will be won and lost and basically played out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's stay with those six for a second. Would also note that uh, Priorities USA, which is sort of the leading super PAC on the Democratic side, they just laid down their kind of initial ad buys for the fall heading into the general election. And those are the six states that right. they're, they're spending their first wave of money in. And Michael, uh, you know, the one thing that sticks out to me about those states first and foremost is that they're all states that Trump carried in 2016. It seems like kind of no matter how you slice and dice this map, you know, Trump is going to be, be playing defense.
1: I think that's probably right although his campaign believes that he's been very strong in Florida up until this point obviously <laughs> they've been spooked by recent poll figures Dave I actually I was wondering cuz you you mentioned Georgia and Texas as as reach states but from what I've been hearing yes the the expectation is Republicans will still hold them but uh, the campaign seems to be taking the threat more seriously than they did in 2016. At least it seems as if they feel they'll be forced to spend more money Absolutely. there than they have. Been. Why do you think that may be?
2: I mean, I, I think that's totally true. But if, if you really drill Democrats on it, they think they can get, I mean, Dan Wagner ran analytics for Obama in 2012, and he went through all these states. And he said, look, We're going to make Republicans spend more money in Texas. We're going to make them spend more money in Georgia. If you put an African-American on the ticket, which Joe Biden may likely very well do, Kamala Harris is Stacey Abrams in Georgia. Obviously, that's going to gin up excitement. That's going to that's history there. The numbers are changing. But if you really put truth serum on the Dems, they'll say, look, we could probably get within a point, within two points. Can we win it? wow, we need everything to go our way. We need a total collapse. We need a shredding of Trump's base not coming out. We need Republicans crossing over. We, we can't just win that on Dem turnout, even high Dem turnout alone. So Dan Wagner called them white whales and that they will get a lot of attention. A lot of money will be poured into them. But in the end... You better make sure you've got Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin. I mean, this is a mistake Hillary made. I mean, right. she went to Arizona. She put money into Texas. And, you know, look what happened. So I think there's going to even be more anxiety over, wow, you better make sure you've got your core states in the blue bucket before you start playing for Texas. And I think, you know, we're going to write stories probably in months, say, hey, Texas might be in play.
0: But I would just put that as still a, a, in a different tier as those first six. Right. And to your point, too, I mean, with with Georgia, um, there was some reporting this week from CNN that Senator David Perdue, who, who's up for reelection there this fall, uh, was sort of warning his supporters that the state could be in play. But to your point, Dave, I mean, if we're talking about Democrats potentially having a shot in Georgia and in Texas, you know, th- the election may be over anyway, right? If, if, right. They're, if they're winning those states, oh, it's a blowout. they're sitting pretty. Totally. Especially in 2020. Now, you know, I think if we're looking at the map further down the road in 2024, 2028, you know, given demographic trends, maybe those Midwestern states like Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania start to become more favorable to Republicans. And then, you know, states like Arizona, Georgia, Texas are becoming more favorable to Democrats. But at least for 2020, it seems like, you know, mission number one is locking down those those former blue wall states of Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. Combined, Democrats only lost them by less than. 100,000 votes in 2016. And they had a lot of success there in the 2018 cycle. And if you're Democrats, you flip those three states and that's it, right? You've beaten right. Trump. You don't that's all you need. need to bring Florida back into your, your column. So, you know, it, it's very tantalizing to think right. about the the opportunities you may have in, in these states that have just been so Republican for so long. And you know, just, the, just the excitement that that can kind of bring to the party to think that those states could be in play. But really, this is kind of like, you know, don't forget about the basics and, and locking down, you know, states that, that you have won and have had a lot of success. In, in recent cycles. But I also want to talk a little bit about Florida. Michael, you, you brought this up a little bit. Right. And that was, you know, really the one battleground state that the Republicans viewed as a success in 2018, right? A lot of the other presidential battleground states, they didn't do so well in, in Senate and gubernatorial and, and House races in 2018. But Florida was still a bright spot for them in 2018. And I think even a lot of Democrats have been wondering, you know, how much money do we want to pour into this state? As, as Dave said, it's very expensive. It's always close, but it seems like Republicans have had the upper hand there. But, you know, what is your sense now about how Trump and the Republican Party are are sort of viewing their their chances in Florida amid this pandemic, you know, with the way the the economy is trending now?
1: Right. And to Dave's point, there is no path for the president without Florida. Mm -hmm. So if there are internal signs from the campaign that Florida is in trouble, you're going to see quite a bit of change from the campaign. Recent polling indicates trouble for Trump, which is... Obviously, a new development uh, for the campaign. They've been very confident in their uh, prospects in Florida and indicates a lack of support for his response to the to the pandemic. The campaign has really gone all in on this state. Obviously, he registered his primary residence there. He's registered to vote there now. Their hope is actually to expand uh, on certain demographic support um, from 2016. The Latino vote... Uh, based on his policies with Cuba and Venezuela. Uh, Absolutely. The Jewish vote with his policies toward Israel uh, could actually help him at the margins there. Right. But honestly, it's the elderly vote, which is obviously substantial in Florida, that's most affected by this current crisis, and I think that's where they're most in jeopardy, and where we're seeing some of this fluctuation uh, in the numbers. Dave, is that is that what you're seeing?
2: The most heartening part about Florida is the 65 and older contingent where Trump is usually one of the strongest as far as demographics go. And they're seeing hemorrhaging there that they think obviously has to do with the coronavirus and his sort of erratic response to it. You know, a Democrat told me the other day, those pictures of people on the beaches, if there's a second wave, you know, the spring breakers out down in on beaches in Florida reopening early could be devastating advertising in that state. If, you know, if you see another spike, if we finally get this thing contained and then in September you see a spike the end of September and October when flu season arrives, that could just be very, very devastating. One other point though on Florida I want to sort of underline because it was, it's been underlined to me all week is that Biden has a money problem. His fundraising is not great. He was already behind the eight ball with Trump on fundraising. And, you know, we talked about the expanding the map, but even Florida, people just over and over just say, you don't realize how expensive it is. It's like going to uh, Whole Foods after shopping at Trader Joe's. It's a totally different experience and it's going to be tough for him to really compete. Now maybe this is a totally different campaign where you don't have to spend as much money because it's, you know, it's all Zoom and it's all, you know, it's it's virtual, but it's still going to cost money to to put TV ads in all of those markets. And that's where it becomes more difficult to play in a Texas and even in a Georgia when when you know you've got to make a real big decision on Florida and how much money you can spend there. But as Adam noted earlier, you know the the, the Super PAC is helping out. Priorities obviously is very well funded. They are they are on the air. They are they are running digital stuff. They are running television. So they are going to have to pick up a lot of the slack from Biden, who is, you know, trying to raise money virtually and virtual Zooms every night and is yet having some success, but he's never going to be able to catch Trump on the money front.
1: Another thing I've been watching is, as a practical matter, uh, elderly voters are among the most reliable voters, right? Right. That may change, right, in the event of a a second wave in the fall. And how how might that affect uh, turnout for, for Trump, especially
0: in Florida? Right. And so far, you know, the polls that have been coming out as we've kind of entered this general election phase actually show Joe Biden beating Trump among Mm. senior voters, which would be a huge development if that holds for him in Florida and in other battleground states moving into November. Uh, Before we leave the map behind here, you know, those kind of core six battleground states we we talked about are all states that Trump won in 2016. And, you know, Democrats are seeing opportunities to maybe take some other traditional GOP strongholds this fall. But I want to quickly, you know, mention a couple states where where Trump and, and Republicans are maybe hoping that they can take one from the Democratic column you know they, they point to states like Minnesota of course there's uh, New Hampshire kind of a small overlooked battleground state they even you know are looking at New Mexico you know Michael how serious are you taking you know sort of their their public statements that they can can sort of play in some of those those states that that Hillary Clinton won in 2016
1: they've been talking about this since 2018 that is the the sort of wish list uh, that they've put forward ever since they they rented office space in in Arlington. And I'm skeptical that that's going to to hold as, you know, as David laid out very clearly, he has to hold uh, the states that he won in 2016.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's the the lesson for both parties here is you got to kind of take care of business in those in those core battleground states first okay. before you start looking elsewhere. Well, a- as I mentioned, you know, Biden has sort of you know jumped out to a lead in, in a lot of the the polls that have come out here in the past couple of weeks, uh, both nationally and in a lot of these mm. uh, critical swing states that we've been talking about. And this is all happening despite the fact that he's been mostly confined to his his basement. You know, he hasn't been able to to hold these rallies or even in person fundraisers. He's being forced to do everything virtually as as basically everyone is right now. And, you know, this comes after Democrats. I think, you know, we're really worried that by getting shut out of the the spotlight, he was going to kind of be forgotten about and that um, that would all benefit Trump. But really, you know, at least in the short term so far, kind of the opposite has happened. And you even have the White House is sort of rethinking its strategy of putting Trump in front of the camera every day for these coronavirus briefings uh, with the press um, now that he's been been facing some some backlash from from that.
1: McClatchy's Washington, D.C. Bureau is tracking the best election reporting from beyond the bubble in a new daily newsletter. Get the Impact 2020 newsletter in your inbox weekdays at 4 p.m. by signing up at impact2020.com slash briefing.
0: So, Michael, I wanted to ask you, since you have attended many of these these briefings, you know, what do you sort of make of the White House's shift on that front, and do you think it, it's going to last?
1: I do think it'll last, and I'm not surprised by the shift, uh, but I am surprised it was made so transparently in response to a really embarrassing misstep by the mm-hmm. president. Right? There was no question of the sequence of events. Though the president went out to the podium, started, you know, talking about shining light into people and injecting them with disinfectant. And then the next thing we know, the briefings are gone, right? So pretty clear. The narrative from that series of events or the political narrative, even if they had planned to slow down the briefings all along, and they did, by the way, right? They were never going to last forever. Mm -hmm. But the way it unfolded, I think, should have been obvious to Trump's communication staff, which has turned over yet again. Right, We have a new press secretary. And I think it's a reflection of the fact that even still, 90% of the way through the first term, we're still seeing the sort of chaos of management that's become really endemic uh, of the Trump administration. So there's no doubt to me that officials around the president were frustrated by the disinfectant episode or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that Trump advisors, campaign aides, have been dissatisfied with the pre-race dynamics for some time now. They feel as if the low visibility of Biden has made the question in voters' minds, at least at the moment, one of a referendum, right, on the president, that their 2020 vote is essentially an up or down vote on on Trump's job performance, which in some ways, of course, is inevitable mm-hmm. in any re-election race. But obviously that drove the White House in the beginning in March to put Trump out front to try and really prove that uh, he was being proactive and on top of combating the virus. But from the get-go, their preference has been to shift that to make it not a referendum, but a choice. Right. And without a proactive and visible opponent, it's really quite difficult to get them to force Biden to engage.
0: Right. Yeah. It seems like right now, and again, you know, we're, we're only at the end of April here. We still have um, six months right. to go, but at least right. right now, you know, the election is sort of shaping up as a, you know, an up or down vote, a referendum on Trump's handling of the coronavirus and, and of the economy. Right. As Joe Biden has sort of been, been fading into the background here. But of course there's a very good chance that that will change before November, you know, particularly, if, you know, we start to return to some resemblance of a normal life here and, and and uh, you know, we have a campaign again and there's, you know, debates between the two. So, Dave, I guess my question to you is, you know, will this dynamic hold where, you know, Biden can sort of, you know, not be in the in the public spotlight every day while Trump is and that ultimately works in the Democrats favor?
2: I don't think it's sustainable for Biden. You know, it's funny. We wrote a story about a month ago where Democrats were sort of fretting that Trump was owning the attention sphere, right? He commanded all the media through these press briefings and Biden would do one cable interview and it would be quickly forgotten. Now Democrats are saying... You know what? This ain't a bad thing. (laughs) Like (laughs) We want Trump out there because he's hurting himself. And Biden has not been the greatest in these interviews. He stumbles a lot and he's seen his polling go up. I mean, they've seen increases in polling since Biden has been in the bunker. So is that sustainable? No. But I would say that, like, I mean, this this Tara Reid. Allegation, mm-hmm. the former vice president is going to have to address it. Whoever he selects as his running mate, it's going to be in the first couple questions they get. They better have a strategy on that, or that could bubble up into way past a couple weeks of a story. I think they're already a little bit behind on it. So events are going to intervene. I mean, the coronavirus obviously upended this entire race, right? Mm -hmm. What else is going to happen that we we don't see coming? But I got to say, Michael, I mean, I cannot imagine that Trump is not going to walk back out and start doing briefings. If he doesn't have a rally to sort of, I guess, fill his need for media, where does he go? The only thing he can do is walk out and have total control over those briefings. I'd be surprised if this lasted. I think this guy loves the media. He loves even bad press. He loves fighting with the press. I mean, I could be wrong. You're obviously more plugged in on that than me. But to me, just as an observer, I'd be shocked if Trump could stay away from the briefing.
1: What you're seeing right now is the White House in the process of trial and error, figuring out how they can control the media appearances that the president makes, right? He's trying, bringing the pool into the Oval more frequently, uh, taking questions from the pool in select events, doing these appearances in the Rose Garden without taking questions. Right now they're trying to figure out how he can stay within you know, control of the uh, of the cycle without falling into the same trap that he did just last week. Yeah. Uh, I will say, though, uh, on Biden's poll numbers, Hillary Clinton enjoyed her highest approval ratings when she was not in the thick of it, right? When she was not in the headlines, right. serving as Secretary of State, she was the most admired from afar. So I am skeptical of the numbers we're seeing right now because they're not reflective of Biden's performance really in the arena. And maybe he can sustain that given how long the crisis is expected to last, but I am not sure. And you know, on the question of the dynamics of will this remain a referendum, Adam, obviously the effects of the crisis and the recovery required are going to really outlast the campaign, right? And everyone knows that. And, and Trump's message at the moment is basically twofold. One, this is a wartime effort, and therefore Trump is a wartime president. And two, I built the pre-COVID economy, I can do it again. And the first message is really critical because the fate of the election could rest on him convincing people that that's true. Right? If a president is running for re-election with the economy, in this like devastating spiral, he is expected to lose. But if a president is running for re-election, fighting a war, he's expected to win. And it's up really to the Trump campaign to convince people that that's the world we're living in.
0: All right. Let's uh, wrap this up here. And to, to close out this show, uh, I want you guys to tell the listeners something that they don't know uh, about the campaign, about the White House or just the wide world of politics in general. Dave, why don't you kick us off?
2: Sure. So in chatting with both campaigns this week, the Trump campaign is boasting between 35 and 40 million direct contacts with voters since he's been president, which is an astounding number. Now, I presented this to the Biden campaign. They are skeptical. And they they were like, what is an exact direct contact? The Trump campaign said, anyone they signed up at a rally, anyone who attended a rally, anyone who received a text message, a phone call. But that's an astounding number. And they say that they could potentially get it to 50 million contacts by Election Day. And that would amount to two-thirds of the voters that they believe they need to win. That is an incredibly large number and one that is ahead of Biden by, by millions, literally, by probably tens of millions, although the Biden campaign would not get into how many direct contacts they have. So that just shows you the advantage of the incumbency, the advantage of being able to run from the start of your last campaign. And with a digital operation that is obviously far ahead of the Biden campaign. All right, Michael, can you top that one?
1: One thing that uh, listeners may not know is that it's Adam's birthday. (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh wow
2: so happy that's a,
1: birthday uh, he did
0: top that how about that <laughs> wow he, uh, that's that's an exclusive <laughs>
1: <laughs> rorty's gift to you was hosting this podcast today
0: <laughs> the greatest so, gift I, I could have been given <laughs> no, that's amazing one thing
1: that's uh, one thing that struck me is that white house officials are actually going to
0: work <laughs> <laughs> like do they actually going into the office
1: they're going into the office um yeah there was obviously debate Around that at the beginning, but most officials are going, you know, NSE, uh, NEC, com staff, all of it, and they're they're typically not wearing masks in the workplace. <laughs> which is just rife with potential you know, scandal. Why not?
2: Um, Why are they not wearing masks?
1: I, I think it's some kind of projection of confidence. Obviously, they have their temperatures tested. When they enter the complex, it's tested throughout the day. that They are receiving rapid COVID tests as well if they're in contact with the president but yeah i mean it's one of the rare places wow in a major city one of the rare workspaces wow. that is open and running and I, I don't know if that's comforting or disquieting but um <laughs> but there there you have it it's been interesting to see you can if you're in the west wing you can see you know folks just walking around like normal without masks i find it huh. very very yeah. odd
0: wow. um okay okay all right, yeah. N- not not bad for your for there your you debut, go. Michael. And for mine, I'll go ahead and plug um, Alex's recent story because I'm sure that's what he would be doing if, if he were here <laughs> right now. Um, he, he had a, a, a really a uh, thoroughly reported story on, I think, kind of a, a you know an overlooked storyline so far in this campaign. But, you know, when we're talking about different voter groups that Biden and Trump will be going after, there's one sort of overlooked, you know, voting block that I think is going to be receiving a lot of attention. And that's young voters of color, particularly men. Now, you know, you think of, you know, black Latino voters and even just young voters in general normally vote overwhelmingly for, for the Democrats. And usually the issue for them is just getting them to the polls. Right. Either they vote for Democrats or they don't vote at all. You know, both parties expect them, you know, again, you know, Joe Biden should have, um, you know, a very huge margin with these voters. But if Republicans are even able to make slight inroads with these voters and to just peel off a little bit obviously that could have huge electoral consequences in these tight battleground states maybe Joe Biden can can make up for that underperformance elsewhere like we talked about with, with older voters but I think those young male voters of color will be a key voting block to keep an eye on here over the next six months I think that's all we have for you today so thank you for our producer Jeremy Sheeler for hanging with us this week and also to our executive producer Davin Coburn and of course thank you to the listeners. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcasting app you use. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or review. We'll talk to you next week.